The Holy Gospel for this fourth Sunday in Epiphany comes from Mark chapter 1. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing the man and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are times when the Bible, something in the Bible, just seems to speak directly to you, just to the moment that you were in, or the moment that, that we together are in. Almost like the authors, the storytellers of Scripture could look into the future and see exactly what would be needed at a certain time. There's moments when a word or a phrase, a, a phrase of comfort or hope or challenge, is almost eerily connected to where you find yourself in life. It's such a good reminder when that happens, such a beautiful and good thing when that happens, and a reminder that this is why we talk about the Bible not just as an old book, but as a living word, one that still speaks to us even today. And there are other times when the Bible just sounds a lot like a really old book, written for a world that no longer exists. When its words, although beautiful and meaningful, feel far away from who we are and what we're dealing with right now. Stories about shepherds and kings and temples and people standing on mountaintops and talking directly face-to-face -face with God. Angels talking to teenagers and 90-year-olds getting pregnant, although that one we might want to just leave in the biblical past. When this ancient collection of stories and wisdom is trying to solve problems we don't have anymore or seems to remain silent on the ones we do. The Bible is still a living word, but living things can be really hard to understand. At first glance, you might have that reaction, that this is about problems we no longer have, to both the reading from Corinthians and from the Gospel, both of our New Testament portions for today. I don't know about you, but although I think about food on a regular basis during my day, the question of whether I should eat food that's been offered to idols has come up zero times for me in the recent past. And I don't really deal with demon possession on a regular basis either. There are a lot of problems out there that we have as a human race. And I'm not sure that idle food and demon possession even crack the top 10. Although I suppose that could lead you to ask, well, what, what is the top 10? 
what are some of our biggest dilemmas, our biggest human problems these days? There's no shortage to choose from. We wonder what we're going to do about artificial intelligence and the ethical questions that it's raising for us. We talk about how we're going to limit the damage that we have caused to the earth with our love of fossil fuels and cheap products, not to mention trying to start healing some of that damage. We wonder what it will take to break down the massive inequities in our world all over the place in great big systems like healthcare and housing and generational wealth and education, and that's just to name a few. All of these are really big problems. And to be honest, the Bible is mostly silent on them. AI, not in the Bible. There's no comment on fossil fuels. Now, there's a lot on inequity, a lot. But it's not always a straightforward transfer from the world of a couple thousand years ago to the type of inequities we have now. You might be tempted, many people are, to think that in all of this, the Bible really just is an old book. It doesn't have that much to add to the conversation. Here's another dilemma that's been very much on my mind. I would, I would put it in the top 10. And I'm guessing that I'm not the only one thinking about this. That's it. That is that it is an election year, a presidential election year in this nation. And it's already been, and it will continue to be, a tough one, a tough time. We might as well name the elephant and the donkey in the room. But I let that settle for a minute. Did you get it? You got it? OK. Don't worry. We're not here to debate candidates. But if there is one thing that is widely shared all the way across the political spectrum, it is this deep sense of anxiety and dread and fear about the level of division in our country and how it's going to play out over the next 10 months or so. We are not really in a good place. And you don't need me to tell you that. Now, the Bible has nothing to say about presidents, nothing to say about democratic elections or parties, no instructions about partisan politics or voting rights, because none of that existed as it does now when the stories and the words of the Bible were being created and told and eventually written down. But the Bible has lots to say about division, lots to say about how we treat one another when we disagree. It has everything to say about our deep human temptations to create insiders and outsiders, friends and enemies, these people we love and those people we hate. Because division is not new. Hatred is as old as the human heart. Fear and anxiety and that sense of dread when you wake up at 2 in the morning convinced that we have messed this all up beyond redemption, that's not unique to those of us living in the 21st century in the United States. And it might be that an old, old story about food and idols is a place to begin. At first glance, 
this is an old problem, about whether early Christians should be eating food that had been previously offered to non-Christian idols. That food might be blessed in some sort of ceremony offered to an idol and then sold in the marketplace. And Christians want to know, like, is it okay if we eat that food or are we not supposed to eat that food? What, what do we do? Now, Paul, who's writing to these Christians, basically assures them that they know that idols aren't the true God. So it's not really a problem. Eat the meat, don't eat the meat, whatever. doesn't matter. But, he continues, are you really asking the best first question? Should your place to start be about what you can do or what you can get away with, about the bare minimum? Or should you start by asking how your choices, even the ones you think of as small, are impacting your neighbors? In other words, just because you can do something, you're free to do it. Should you? Now that's not an old question. Can you ridicule people with whom you disagree? Sure. Can you roll your eyes at the foolishness of people on the opposite side of the political spectrum? Yeah. Do you have the right to dismiss your opponents as uninformed and unconnected to the way you experience life so fundamentally different it's not even worth trying to talk to people anymore? Can you do all that? Yeah, I mean, you can. Should you? It all adds up. People see it, Paul says. Our children see it. Our neighbors see it. Now, we are all flawed human beings. We are all going to make mistakes over and over again. We all rely on the promise of forgiveness. And yet, Paul's voice echoes to us from this old, old argument thousands of years and miles away with the reminder that the things we do in our everyday lives, they matter. They can build up or tear down. Big divisions start with small cracks. But that also means that small choices and acts of healing, of deciding not just what you can do, but what's better for somebody else, that's a powerful place to begin. So there's that story from Corinthians, and then there's the gospel, which also sounds like an old story about an old problem. A man who the story says is possessed by an unclean spirit or a demon interrupts Jesus while Jesus is basically like giving a sermon in the synagogue. And Jesus stops and casts out this demon, and the crowd is amazed at what he's done. And the word about Jesus begins to spread. If this guy can do that thing, what else might be possible? Now, in those days, a person like this, the one who interrupted Jesus, someone whom the community had determined was possessed or confused or ill in some kind of fundamental major way, might very well have been ostracized and cast out from the community. 
That was, this was long before people knew what made some things contagious or how to treat a great many diseases. And so the hope was that by keeping people away from the community, you could protect and keep the community safe. Except that wasn't really the only motivation, was it? Underneath that is probably fear. Fear of what couldn't be understood or controlled or fixed. Fear of what was different and disruptive outside the ordinary. Lepers and menstruating women and people who were called possessed and folks with physical disabilities of lots of kinds were cast out because people were afraid of them and what they represented, which is that life is mostly out of our control. And so people resorted to the same tactics, maybe a more dramatic version, that we still use to push away what we don't understand, to separate ourselves from what we can't manage, to stay far away from the things that make us anxious. Maybe if we don't see it, it'll just go away. None of these biblical stories were written to 21st century people who were nervous about an election season in a time of deep and widening national division. None of these biblical stories anticipated all the factors that we're dealing with now, the rise in misinformation and how easy social media makes it to insult people behind the safety of a computer screen. There's no gospel story out there about what to do when you're worried that your democracy is driving off a cliff. And every biblical story is written to people who are worried about what they can't control, who are confused and hurt and maybe even angry about their world that's so hurting and broken and they don't know how to fix it, who are grieving the loss of relationships they used to have and people they used to love in a world that just doesn't work the way they thought it was going to. Every biblical story, every living story, even the ones about food offered to idols and people possessed by spirits, all of them are showing us how to turn toward one another instead of push each other away, how to choose each other rather than cast out, how difficult, sometimes impossible, and yet necessary it is to remember that every human being you meet is made in the image of God, and you've got to treat them like it. We are most likely in for a hard time this year. But God has been with us in hard times before. These old stories tell us that. In wilderness wandering, in injustices of all kinds, in loss and joy and getting lost and everything in between. There is no future in which God is not already present. There is no path on which God is not already walking. There are no 
old Bible stories that are not also brand new right now stories about resurrection and hope just when you think the tomb is closed forever. What I believe, beloved ones, in all prayer and conviction, and what I can say to you is that choosing hope and connection and respect and honesty, choosing each other and refusing to walk away, trusting the God who made us who we are, loves who we are, and loves who we can become, that is and always will be the way through. May God give us the courage and the patience and the wonderfully old yet beautifully new stories to show us the way. Amen.